All right, go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we are going to wrap up our Encounters with Christ series, looking at a man who encountered Christ in the last few hours of his life. It's the classic deathbed conversion of all time. I'm assuming you're familiar with that um, expression, deathbed conversion. For some of you uh, youngins, maybe let me define it a bit. A deathbed conversion is what we call it when someone on the brink of death repents of their wrong thoughts and their wicked ways and places their faith in Jesus Christ to save them from sin, death, and hell. It's a deathbed conversion. They're broken, they're contrite about the way they've lived their lives, and they want to get right with God before they die. And there's no better example of this than the thief on the cross. And his 11th hour conversion is one of the most moving and memorable moments of Christ's crucifixion. And so we're parachuting down on Golgotha, and we're swooping into the scene, and I want to begin reading in verse 32. This is Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. Now verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. One of the most familiar images of the crucifixion is three crosses standing on a hill side by side. That's how the death of Christ is often portrayed, perhaps most commonly portrayed, Jesus hanging on a cross between two thieves. And while all four Gospels mention the fact that, that two thieves were crucified alongside Jesus, Luke is the only one who gave us a detailed account of what happened to those two thieves. And, and so to me, verses 39 to 43 are really the, the highlight of the crucifixion account. And the salvation of this penitent thief shines forth in the midst of this, this pain and agony and darkness and sadness of Jesus' death. 
the Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. But who would have ever considered that one of those transgressors would get saved in the process? J.C. Ra, one of my favorite uh, authors and uh, wrote one of my favorite books called Holiness, he said this, that this thief is, quote, the greatest trophy which Christ ever won. He went on to describe this scene. He said, if ever there was a soul hovering on the brink of hell, it was the soul of this thief. If ever there was a case that seemed lost, gone, past recovery, it was his. If, ever, if, there, if there was ever a child of Adam whom the devil made sure of as his own, it was this man, yet he was plucked as a brand from the fire. So in the providence of God, these two criminals were given front row seats to the crucifixion. No one had a better view of what Jesus went through on the cross than these two guys. Both of them witnessed him struggle on the way to Calvary to the point that someone else had to be forced to carry his cross. Both of them heard the, the mourning and the wailing of the woman who followed him. Both heard him tell them to weep for themselves because of the judgment that was about to come upon Jerusalem for rejecting their Messiah. They both saw the soldiers drive nails into his hands and his feet and then mercilessly hoist him up beside them on a cross. Both of them heard him cry out to God to forgive the people because they didn't know what they were doing. Both of them watched the soldiers gamble for his robe. Both of them heard the religious leaders taunting him to save himself if he really was the Messiah as he said he was. Both of them heard the Roman soldiers mocking him that if he was the king, then why not prove it? They both read the inscription above his head that read, this is the king of the Jews. They could see the drops of bloody sweat dripping down his body. They could hear every groan and see every grimace on his face. But even though they both witnessed this same exact event, it made a completely different impression on each of them. And they both responded in two profoundly different ways, which resulted in each of them spending eternity in two profoundly different places. And so I want us to look at this story tonight and, and consider the responses of these two thieves, which are really representative of the, the two possible responses that any one of us could have to the death of Jesus Christ. You could respond, number one, with hostile rejection and unbelief, or you could respond in humble repentance and belief. Let's look first of all at this one criminal, this one thief in verse 39, who responded in hostile rejection and unbelief. Look at verse 39 again. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, at Christ, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so the crowd surrounding the foot of the cross were yelling at Jesus to prove that he was who he said he was by rescuing himself. And, and if that wasn't enough to deal with, all of a sudden this guy next to Jesus, one of the criminals, starts yelling the same thing. 
And he got caught up in the frenzy and, and sarcastically taunted Jesus to save all of them. I mean, come on, man, perform a miracle and get, a, get us all out of this mess. I mean, this guy wanted to be saved for sure. He didn't want to be where he was at that time. He wanted off that cross. But his problem was he wanted to get saved his way. He obviously had no thought of God, no guilt for his sin, no desire to repent or to change, no sense of any need for forgiveness or a savior. And neither did anyone in this angry mob below. And, and so consequently, they, they all rejected him. Why? Because he wouldn't come down off the cross. But what they failed to realize is that if he saved himself, then he couldn't save them. And so contrary to what they believed, it wasn't weakness that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his powerful love for them. And even after all the Jewish religious leaders and Roman soldiers had done to him, he still had tremendous love and compassion for them. And he did what he had taught his disciples to do, to pray for your enemies. And so he prayed that God would forgive them for what they were doing because they didn't know what they were doing. They were acting in total ignorance. And God could have and should have killed them instantly for killing his son but God was merciful to them. And guess what? If you're here tonight and you are someone who has rejected Christ or is rejecting Christ presently, you need to know that Jesus is praying for you too. He's no longer on the cross. He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But I think his heart is the same. Obviously, he's praying for you right now in your ignorance because you don't know what you're doing. You think you know what you're doing. Yeah, I don't need Jesus. Yeah, whatever. Kind of like Jonathan was admitting when he was a young person. Who needs Jesus? I'm going to do my own thing. You need to realize that, that, that God could kill you instantly for your rebellion against him if he wanted to. But what he wants is to forgive you. You say, well, how could he possibly forgive me for all that I've done? Well, that question is answered in the experience of the second thief, because both Matthew and Mark recorded that at first, both criminals were mocking Christ along with the crowd. They were both doing that. But as the hours wore on, God began to convict the conscience of one of those two criminals, and he repented of his life of sin, and he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the second response, is, is humble repentance and belief. Notice verse 40. But the other answer, and rebuking him, the thief, other thief, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So here's the other thief rebuking his friend. We assume that maybe they were uh, partners in crime. And his rebuke revealed the fact that an amazing transformation had taken place in his heart because just a little while ago, he was taunting Christ as well. 
But while he hung there dying next to Jesus, God, through the Holy Spirit, initiated the work of regeneration in this guy's soul. And he was overwhelmed with a sense of his own sinfulness in comparison to this righteous man hanging next to him. Now, we don't know anything about this guy other than this. So, so we don't know how much or how often he stole or from whom or why he stole. All we know is he was a wicked thief who deserved to die for his crimes. And we don't know if this was the first and only time he had been with Jesus, had interacted with Jesus, had encountered Jesus, but apparently what he saw and what he heard that day was enough to make him want to turn from his life of sin and to place his faith in Jesus as his Lord and Master. And his decision demonstrated remarkable faith in light of the circumstances. I mean, think about when this guy got saved. Jesus' own disciples had abandoned him. They, they had all scattered and denied him. The, the Jewish religious leaders, these were the guys that, that were supposed to be leading the nation to have a relationship with God. They had rejected Jesus as a blasphemous fraud. To the Roman soldiers, Jesus was just a big joke. Not to mention the fact that, that Jesus was hanging there next to this guy, nailed to a cross. And yet despite all this, this thief boldly professed faith in this bleeding, suffering man as his Lord and Savior. He trusted a dying king because he recognized that he was no ordinary king. He was a different kind of king, a king who was not of this world, that, that he was a forgiving king who had the power to bring even the worst, most unworthy subjects into his kingdom. So when you, when you think about all that this guy had to overcome in his mind and his heart, I mean, his faith was truly astounding. G. Campbell Morgan, who is a classic commentator from Great Britain, along with the Lord now, uh, this is what he said. He said, quote, it seems to me the story of the faith of the dying thief is the most remarkable in all the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, I do not know of any manifestation of faith quite so wonderful. John Calvin, who commented on this as well. He said, I know not that since the creation of the world, there was ever a more remarkable and striking example of faith. Someone else said it this way, that it was the grace of God to be able to see the sun behind such dark clouds. And so the genuineness of this guy's Faith and repentance, I think, is evidenced in, in some pretty significant ways. And, and we just have to go back through his words here in verses 40 through 42. But first of all, he feared God. He said, don't, don't, you, don't, you, don't you even fear God? So he recognized God as his creator, his sustainer, his judge, who, who he had ignored all of these years and had not honored him or given him thanks so he feared God. He also, secondly, knew that he deserved to die for what he had done. He admitted his sin. He acknowledged the fact that, that he deserved to be punished for it. 
Thirdly, he knew that Jesus didn't deserve to die, that he was innocent. And so he understood that Jesus was, was, was not just a martyr, but a sinless sacrifice who submitted himself to the brutality of the cross without any resistance, without any retaliation. He also believed that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah. He was God's son sent to save us. And he also believed that the Messiah was about to enter his glory, that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he wanted to experience his grace and mercy. He realized that that Jesus was his only hope. And so he cried out for mercy. I mean, what a powerful example of true repentance and faith. I mean, this is what it means to be a Christian. To turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. And I think these are the things that will mark the life of a person who is is truly saved. Who has been generally born again. And I make that emphasis because the thief on the cross is is some people's favorite um, example. That all you need to do to be saved is believe in Jesus. Jesus. Even if there's no fruit in your life, that you're saved. Because look at the thief of the cross. I mean, all he did was place his faith in Christ. He didn't have time to demonstrate fruit of a changed life. And my response is, well, what do you call this stuff? This is all fruit of salvation. I don't know of, a, of any clearer example of the fact that true salvation results in a transformed life. Again, J.C. Ryle said this, short as his life was after conversion, he found time to leave abundant evidence that he was a child of God. His faith, his prayer, his humility, his brotherly love are unmistakable witnesses of the reality of his repentance. And then Ryle says this, let no man therefore say that because the penitent thief was saved, that men can be saved without leaving any evidence of the Spirit's work. Don't believe that. There will always be some evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I appreciated Jonathan's talking about, you know, hey, this is who I was before I was saved, and and then I got saved, and, and then this is what the Lord started doing in my life. I had new desires, I had new passions, I, I developed new habits. That's what's called sanctification, right? And you can't separate justification from sanctification. If you're justified in Christ, you will be sanctified. And so if there's no sanctification going on in your life, then that's evidence that you probably haven't been justified. Now, on the other hand, let me say this, and be quick to point out that this man never got baptized. He never joined a church. He never took communion. He never served or financially supported uh, the the work of the kingdom or the cause of Christ, which is undeniable proof that salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works so that none can boast. And so this thief didn't deserve to be saved, and there was nothing he could do to earn his salvation. Amen? Amen? 
And notice verse 43. How did Jesus respond to his repentant faith? He said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So Jesus assured him that he would reward his repentant faith, which God had granted him by bringing him to heaven with him when they died. Don't miss that. This repentant faith that we witnessed or were witnessing here, this was nothing this man accomplished on his own. This was something that God did in his heart. God grants repentance and faith. And some people say, well, you can't add repentance to faith because repentance is a work. And the Bible says you just have to have faith. Well, guess what? Faith is a gift from God. Faith, God grants us the ability to believe. Guess what? So is repentance. It's a gift from God. And the Bible talks about that in multiple places. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. It mentions, it specifically says that God grants repentance. So it's equal to faith in that regard. And so God granted him this repentant faith and and Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna reward you by bringing you to heaven with me when we die. He says, today, you shall be with me in paradise. The only other time that word is used in scripture, there's only two other places, both refer to heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Revelation 2, 7. And that word paradise is an interesting word because it was a Persian word that was used to describe a park or some kind of enclosed garden. And whenever a Persian king wanted to, to honor one of his subjects and, 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 and bless them, he would allow them to walk with him in his garden. And so Jesus promised this thief that he would have the special honor of living eternally with him in heaven, walking in his garden with him. We often hear that heaven is is uh, going to be paradise, right? It's, it's equated with paradise, whatever paradise means. We have a very earthly view of paradise, so it's really hard to imagine what heaven will be like. But we need to remember that whatever it is that we're looking forward to most about heaven, it will pale in comparison to the fact that Jesus will be there. Notice when it says, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. You'll have personal communion with Christ. So the best part of heaven is going to be just being with Jesus. There might be a bunch of gold stuff up there and there might be a bunch of other really cool things and, and, and wow, we'll have like eternal bodies and we'll be able to walk through walls like Jesus did. You know, we'll be able to, it's going to be crazy. But the best part of it is we're going to be with Jesus. Notice he said, today you shall be with me in paradise. This is a good reminder that when a believer dies, their soul is instantly in the presence of Christ in heaven. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Purgatory. 
No, to, it's gain. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ or to stay here. That would not be a, a, a difficult decision, right? If it, if it was like, hey, I can stay here and continue to serve the Lord or I get to go, you know, sleep for 2,000 2, years, you know, soul sleep. That's a doctrine some people believe in. Or, or I get to go to purgatory. No, I'd rather stay here and serve the Lord. No, Paul knew it was either serving the Lord here or being Worshiping Christ in heaven. I can't decide. So there's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as soul sleep. The implication here is clearly the second this guy breathed his last breath, he went straight to heaven. And the other thief, when he breathed his last breath, went straight to hell. I mean, this is the ultimate deathbed conversion, isn't it? In the final moment of this guy's life, a lifetime of sin was forgiven. And he was given the reward of eternal life in heaven. Whenever I think about the thief on the cross, I think about the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. You're familiar with that? This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and I'll just read parts of it here. He says, uh, Jesus said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard and he went out the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went out in the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, in other words, there was one hour left to work in the day. Like four o'clock, for example, and the, the closing bell would go at five. He went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why have you been standing around idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them was also received an heiress. So you, you think about this. They lined all the guys up who had worked all day, and the guys that worked just for that one hour, the, the landowner comes and gives them an heiress, and the guys down at the end had been working all day going, hoo-hoo, we're going to get, this is payday for us. If he's given them a denarius, surely he's going to give us nine denarius because we worked nine more hours than they did or eight more hours than they did. But they all got the same. Verse 11, when they received it, they said, thank you so much. We really appreciate you letting us work for you all day. No, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Take what is yours and go. But I wish... But if I wish to give to this last man the same as to you, what's that to you? Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. I remember when God graciously and mercifully saved Tim Kemright's dad in the 11th hour, essentially. I think he was in his 80s. And I remember talking to him, and he felt so unworthy 
Like it wasn't fair that he had lived his entire life for himself and then here in the last few years of his life, God saved him. And so if I remember correctly, we read this passage at his memorial service that he was one of those guys that the Lord hired in the 11th hour. And sure, there may be those of us who have you know, walked with the Lord for many years. God saved us when we were young and we've been enduring the scorching heat and carrying the burden of, of the kingdom on our back. And it's easy to say, well, that's just not fair. That would have been nice to kind of live my life however I wanted and then at the last second get saved and I'm in. Well, the reality is it's never too late to repent. As long as your heart is beating, the invitation to turn from your life of sin and place your faith in Christ still stands. But that shouldn't make you think that, all right, cool. Well, I'm just going to wait until the end of my life and repent like the thief on the cross. This is going to be my salvation story. This is how I'm going to encounter Christ. Someone said it so well. Jesus saved a thief on the cross so that no one would despair, but he only saved one so that no one would presume. The Bible warns us not to be presumptuous in light of the brevity of life, the shortness of life, and the uncertainty of death. James 4.14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. In other words, none of us knows how long we're going to live or how we're going to die. We may die in a sudden, unexpected manner that will rule out a deathbed conversion. And if that's what you're putting your eggs in that basket, that's not a good basket you're putting your eggs in. And that's why the Bible doesn't tell us to, to consider coming to Christ someday, but what? Today. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So don't abuse God's mercy and compassion by continuing to live in sin, thinking that, you know, I'll just repent whenever I decide. I've got time. I'll wait till I get older, wait till I get married, start having kids, settle down, then I'll give my life to Christ. Don't be presumptuous. You don't know what tomorrow holds. These three crosses that we have grown so accustomed to seeing on the hill of Calvary, they really are a, a microcosm of everyone in the world. All of us are, are criminals who are condemned to die. And Christ died in the middle cross, in the place of all those who would repent and believe. And it's like we're hanging, all of us are hanging on either side of Jesus. And we're all going to die. And there's nothing we can do about it. The question is, where will we spend eternity? Will we spend eternity in heaven or will we spend eternity in hell? And it all depends on what you do with the guy in the middle. 
with the man hanging on the cross. You can respond to him in hostile rejection and unbelief and die in your sin and have to pay the penalty for your own sin in hell. Or you can respond in humble repentance and faith like this thief, demonstrating your fear of God by admitting that you're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell and, and yet believing that Jesus is the innocent, righteous son of God who died in your place to rescue you from death. If you respond like that, then Christ will respond to you the same way he responded to this dying faith, that dying thief. He'll save you, he'll forgive you, he'll grant you eternal life in heaven when you die. Three crosses, two criminals, one choice. What are you going to choose? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we've had to consider this amazing encounter that the thief had with Christ as he hung there on the cross next to Jesus. Lord, I know that this is very practical, relevant truth for every one of us sitting here tonight. Lord, I don't know where everyone's heart is at who's here, but you do. And I pray that you would accomplish your work in each of our hearts, that you would grant those who are not yet saved, that you would grant them repentance and faith as only you can do. Regenerate them by your spirit. And Lord, for those of us who you've already done that, we thank you, we praise you. And I pray that you would give us a burden, a passion to tell others about Christ and maybe even share their stories with someone this week. What a, what a cool story to share that no matter what you've done or how far you've gone away from the Lord, that you can always, there's always hope that you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can have hope of eternal life. So Lord, would you be glorified tonight through the preaching of your word? We know that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it goes forth. And so would we be able to see the fruit um, in our lives as a result of the sitting under the teaching of your word? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.